All right, last week we got through um, the attribute of God's grace. Uh, tonight we're going to look at merciful um, and long-suffering, and uh, we can keep going if we have time. Um, and again, on these I have not addressed the um, attributes in any great depth at this point because they will all appear later uh, in the confession um, so these specific attributes here are um, just kind of a cursory glance to define them as they relate to God's attributes. The application of them we'll deal with later on. So uh, first we will uh, look at um, merciful. Um, and obviously when we talk about God being merciful, it's what, what do we most often that what other attributes is that often spoken of in conjunction with grace yeah what's that oh wrath yeah certainly grace yeah but most often we hear mercy and grace kind of together right so how do we uh, what's the distinction between the two what is grace from what we talked about uh, last week Say again. Okay, so something that God is giving us that um, we did not, um, we don't merit, we don't deserve it, we didn't earn it. Um, God is graciously bestowing something on us. So, um, if you remember from last week, He's giving us a gracious gift, and in turn we uh, receive it as a gracious receipt. So there's a giving and a receiving. Um, that uh, is involved in grace, uh, but it is not something that we um, we worked for or deserved. Um, so mercy, in simple terms, is what? Yeah, not not receiving what we do deserve, right? So God withholding uh, the very thing that we deserve, and so there's a tie between them in that. Um, Withholding wrath, in essence, uh, but granting uh, granting grace. Now, that's, these are very simplistic. We're going to deal with a little more complex. Uh, we're going to define them a little more. Right. Yeah, and uh, we're, we're not going to deal a great deal with that at this point, but that, yes, that type of mercy. We talk about mercy ministry, um, that we would do a ministry of mercy to where we are having mercy on someone, we're relieving um, pain, oppression, poverty, those things are ministries of mercy. Um, now, God certainly does show mercy in that way, and that is, um, that is a part of this. Um, most often when it's referred to in the scriptures, it's referred to in terms of um, man showing mercy to a fellow man. And so it's a horizontal aspect as opposed to a vertical aspect. Uh, but the vertical aspect certainly does exist or else we would not, um, we wouldn't have anything to base our mercy on in that regard. So, um, so as the notes say here, man is undoubtedly in need of divine help as a result of original sin, the fall of mankind, and not just original sin, but um, our own sin of um, uh, coming from our uh, sinful nature and heart. Um, 
so mercy presupposes the sinfulness of man. When anyone speaks of mercy, the mercy of God toward man, it presupposes that man is sinful and in need of it. Um, in his mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in misery and is ever ready to relieve their distress. And I think that's really important for us to remember um, and very helpful um, evangelistically and as we talk to people about the gospel. Um, if someone is referring to the mercy of God um, and yet wanting to deny the corruption of man, um, they're kind of using conflicting ideas there. Um, so mercy automatically assumes that um, there's, there's some kind of alienation that's taken place. There's some kind of brokenness in a relationship uh, that needs to be um, fixed. And so for God to show mercy to man, we are assuming already um, sinfulness. Uh, we see it uh, throughout the Bible in many ways. Um, God's mercy is general and prevalent in all his works. Um, I gave you some scripture examples there. I want to try and get through as much as we can tonight, so we're not going to stop and look at each of those, but they're in there for you. Um, and yet most uh, for us, as we, as we think about mercy, as we speak of mercy, most prominently we see it in um, our own lives, in the lives of mankind, and in the work of salvation. Um, various ways that mercy is described in the Bible uh, from God as great, plenteous, tender, abundant, and from everlasting to everlasting. Um, <clears throat> and this, if you recall, um, all Reformed people have Romans 9 memorized. So Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, is, um, is what God says. And he is quoting God from, um, from the Exodus account in dealing with Pharaoh. Um, so in that, um, what is, what is God saying when he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy? What is implied in that statement? Okay, good. That's part of it. So there's a general understanding across the board that all mankind, um, is deserving of quite the opposite of what God is choosing to show some. So, the mercy, the mercy of, and I'm bringing this up because this again is something very important when talking to people about the gospel. Um, the mercy, the mercy of God in this regard implies um, not just my sinfulness and yours, but the sinfulness of the entire human race. Um, that no one is born who is without need of the mercy of God if they are to um, to have any hope for eternal life. Um, also implied in this, of course, is God's sovereignty and his, um, his desire to grant salvation to those whom he has chosen. Um, it's really hard to work around that in statements like this. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Um, there's nothing implied in there whatsoever in the definition of mercy itself and in the statement of God. Um, that would imply that man has any work that can be done in order to merit it, which even includes um, making some kind of decision or saying some sort of prayer. Um, so why would this? Why is this important in the evangelistic task? That's what I want us to kind of talk about. Why is that knowledge of that understanding um, 
Why is it important for us to know that and work through those details when we are seeking to do something evangelistically? Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. So then I don't go to anyone. Um, the, um, the doctrines that we hold to should make us a very humble people. That I don't go to anyone with an arrogant pride that I'm saved and you're not. And uh, I have a knowledge that that you don't have. And um, if you don't believe this, then, you know, you're an idiot or whatever. Um, but rather, I go to someone in a state of humility, amazed by the mercy, amazed by the grace of God, um, because I deserve what they deserve. We're in the same we're in the same condition in that regard, and the only difference being that God chose to save me. Um, and so then, my pleading with sinners is very different when I have that mentality versus a prideful heart, as though I was able to do anything to merit this. Um, it also is um, really important as we deal with the issue of fairness, right? Um, as you talk about God's electing uh, grace, his sovereign grace and election, that's generally the comment that comes up. Well, that's, not, that's just not fair. Um, so how do we respond to that with the right understanding of mercy? Yeah, great. You don't want what's fair <laughs> is on, uh, 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 most often what I say. If someone says, that's not fair, well, you don't want what's fair um, because then all of us would be condemned forever. Um, What you want is mercy. And in God showing us mercy, um, he is showing this attribute of his character to some people. The the right question to ask really is, um, why am I ever able to live uh, and take another breath because of my true nature? Um, instead of why does God save me and not him, um, I should, um, you know, I should be asking uh, greater questions about all of humanity, about why, why did God at all choose to show mercy to anybody uh, because of what we have all done and continue to do in our sin. Um, so these things are really important as we deal with God's character in relaying the gospel to people and working through issues that will come up as we do that. Um, and also we see in Romans 9, the elect of God are designated as vessels of mercy. Paul uses that very language in Romans 9. Um, and so there, there is some disagreement about this, but the vast majority of Reformed people um, believe that God has chosen some for salvation by showing mercy and grace, and he has... Um, overlooked the others or allowed them to continue on in their pattern of sin. The different, some would argue that, um, you know, God doesn't, um, well, never mind, that's not related to this. (laughs) We'll do that later. Yes, double predestination. Um, We'll talk later. That's gonna get us. That's gonna get us way down the wrong path tonight, and it'll come up later in the confession. N- no, we'll talk later. <laughs> it's a good attempt at weaseling that in there, but it, we're not going down that road. <laughs> All right. Um, any thoughts or comments, questions about God's mercy, about the attribute of God's mercy? 
about the death of children, you mean? That is also addressed in our confession. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, get through it, yeah. Well, I promise. I told you all along, we will speed up after this. I promise. All right, uh, let's look at long-suffering, the long-suffering or the patience of God. Um, so again, like mercy, there is a presupposition here that we have to, um, that we have to think about. The, pre- the presupposition is that um, God would be justified in pus- punishing sinners with wrath. Um, to say that God is patient means that there's something that, um, that patience is required for. Now, that's not to say that were it not for mankind that God would not have the attribute of long-suffering, but with regards to his relationship toward us, um, it presupposes God's, um, God being justly um, able or just in his punishment um, of them with his wrath. Um, But he postpones punishment and instead grants mercy and grace. So you see very much how these are related to um, each other. Um, Some uh, definition here from Stephen Charnock in The Existence and Attributes of God. He says, The goodness or love of God in virtue of which he bears with the froward and evil in spite of their long-continued disobedience. He says, It signifies a willingness to defer and an unwillingness to pour forth wrath upon sinful creatures. God moderates his provoked justice and forbears to revenge the injuries he daily meets with in the world. I think that's a fantastic definition. That he, um, so there's, a two, there's two parts to God's patience or long-suffering. What are they? What are, he just defined them for us. So what are the two parts to it? Okay, so he's deferring wrath, right? And what's the other? Yep. So this is related. So he's deferring his wrath, his patience that he has he has determined an unwillingness to pour out wrath on his creatures um, right then and there as they sin. Um, and in the midst of being provoked, in essence, um, if we can use that word, um, then he is... responding with mercy. He's responding with grace. Um, And this is tied into his long-suffering. And and we'll get to this in a little bit, but all of this really falls under theologically the heading of the goodness of God. Um, But they're all very much interrelated. Um, So it's important uh, that we recognize that this does not diminish the divine... Um, attribute of impassibility, which we've worked on before. Um, again, Charnock says, as patience signifies suffering, so it is not in God. Remember, God does not suffer. God does not sway in his emotions. He doesn't have um, mood swings. The divine nature is impassable, incapable of any impair. It cannot be touched by the violences of men, nor the essential glory of it be diminished by the injuries of men. He suffers no grief by men's wrongdoing him, 
but he restrains his arm from punishing them according to their merits. And thus there is patience in every cross a man meets with in the world, because, though it be a punishment, it is less than is merited by the unrighteous rebel, and less than may be inflicted by a righteous and powerful God. Um, so again, this is very important as we talk about the unity of the elements of the attributes of God uh, because of his simplicity. So when we talk about God's patience, we're saying, you know, when we talk about our patience, um, I am patient uh, with my daughter, which implies something, right? That um, there's something going on, some kind of situation going on that has the potential to provoke a certain response, right? Um, so, uh, generally, uh, when we say we lose our patience, is that spoken of as a virtuous thing? No, I can't really think of any instance when it is. Um, so, what's implied in that is that we're being provoked, we're being stirred up to something. In other words, there's going to be a change of mood. We can't speak of patience in that way about God because God is impassable. He is not, um, he is not uh, open himself to be provoked in that way. You know, you talk, if, uh, if a plane crashes, people will shake their fist at heaven and say, you know, why did, God, why did your God allow this to happen? Um, but they never, they never stop to consider that all day long, day after day, thousands upon thousands of airplanes take off and land without incident. Um, but one of them falls out of the sky and they want to shake their fist at God. Um, so, you know, God is very patient. He's very, very patient with his people. You see that all throughout, particularly his dealings with the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And uh, certainly with his church uh, for the last 2,000 years, God has shown great patience through much error and, um, and sin. So... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, we want to think of God in terms of mercy, grace, and love being applied only apart from these other attributes. Mercy, grace, and love are applied because God is patient, because he has patiently endured with our sinfulness, our wickedness, and the condition of mankind. Um, and so when something happens, something horrific, there's some kind of sin that manifests itself um, in our lives or the lives of those around us or culturally or whatever else, um, man is very quick to turn and blame God. <laughs> well, God, if you remember, you know, the common grace of God and these elements of God's mercy in his showing that to all mankind, regardless of whether or not they are children of God, um, that God's patience toward man is really um, speaking to this reality that if he could he could remove his grace he could remove his mercy uh, from mankind right now and all would just com- completely be annihilated uh, very quickly we would turn on each other uh, instantly our hearts would be um, brought to a place of their true nature and uh, man would destroy man um, so. Why does God display his patience according to the Bible? What is the purpose of his patience? Um, It's a really important consideration. Um, 
but we can't think of this or talk of this outside of the proper context in how the Bible deals with the patience of God. Um, so, for example, one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible deals with the patience of God. Second uh, Peter 3, nine. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, taken as a verse out of its context, if we just read that one verse, what is implied here? And why is it so popular? Okay. Okay. God desires, God has a want in his heart that everyone be saved. God really wants that. Um, So what kind of problems are we running into just by saying that? God wants everyone to be saved. Okay. God gets what he wants, right? We are denying, outright denying the sovereignty of God with a statement like that. Um, to say that Second Peter 3.9 is implying that God wants all men everywhere to be saved, um, but yet in the end we know very clearly that all men are not, then what we're saying is God is not sovereign. You will hear this verse quoted all the time. <laughs> There's a whole chapter called Free Will in the Confession. We'll get there. <laughs> you, keep, you keep jumping the gun. So what is Peter saying here? God is patient toward his elect that they will eventually come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not just making that up to fit a theological framework. It fits the context of the passage. So I'll um, do a little, uh, show you um, how to get there by looking at the text. So go in your Bible to 2 Peter 3, 9. We read verse 9. Someone read for us verse 8. Okay, so he's again speaking, he's speaking into this verse on the patience of God. Who is he talking to? Who does he reference in that verse, verse 8? Beloved. Okay, who are the beloved? Go to the, um, go to verse 1, I believe. Someone read verse 1 for us. Okay. That's good. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Again, he addresses the beloved. Um, so, second letter. Well, we have the first letter, right? Go to First Peter one. Where are letters? Where are epistles in the Bible? Uh, where do they indicate who the letter is to? Beginning or end? The beginning, right? So the first part of First Peter, someone read uh, verse 1 for us, First Peter 1. Okay, great. So he's writing to the elect exiles, right? So the beloved that it refers to are those who are elect of God. Okay, we can't separate this one verse out of the entire context of these two letters, or else we make it say something entirely different than what it means. So... 
this has huge implications when we talk about the patience of God because what it's saying, Peter's saying, is God is patient toward you, beloved, the elect. In other words, God is patient until all of the elect are saved. He's waiting for all of the elect to repent and believe in the gospel. And at that time... um, that task will be complete. And there's an eschatological, a forward-looking element to this. Um, so uh, we can't separate that out and say God just has this desire that all men everywhere be saved. Um, we have to look at this in its proper context. Just like yeah, any of you yeah. is the reference. Any of you, beloved, in verse 8, not wishing that any... Um, yeah, he's he's not speaking of in general from all mankind, but say again. Yeah, no, I I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't use that to speak um, to someone who was not a believer uh, in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mean not just the elect of that he refers to? Yeah, well, since he's not destroyed us and Christ has not returned, then there's a, um, yeah. So there's future promise implied there. I think that's what you're asking. Okay. Um, We see the same sort of thing in Malachi 3.17. God says, they shall be mine uh, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Um, so again, um, there's this idea of patience, of mercy, of love, of grace, all of these things wrapped up in this idea here. So there's this relationship between mercy and long-suffering that is evident as God um, relates to sinners. Um, the patience of God is a mercy. We have to th- think of it in those terms. The patience of God is a mercy, um, but the um, the point of mercy, or excuse me, the point of God's patience is that he will show uh, mercy through that. So there's kind of this uh, double thing at play here as they work, uh, work together, if you will. Um, God's attributes are complementing one another in this regard. Uh, great quote here. Even so, God's patience does not make him soft or weak. God's slowness to anger does not mean that he is incapable of anger. The delay of the fulfillment of promises to his people does not reflect slackness in God. In the same way, his deferring of punishment is not from a stupidity under the affronts offered him. Since God is omniscient and has complete knowledge of the thoughts and actions of sinful human beings. Um, I think that is a very, very important thing to highlight here. Generally, when the idea of God's patience is tied to God wanting all men everywhere to be saved, um, not only is the sovereignty of God undercut, but um, this attribute of God that um, he can and is and will show anger towards sinful humankind and will display his wrath, um, that's sort of removed. And so he becomes very weak. We don't want a weak God. We don't want a soft God. Um, We want to see this balance of um, God's mercy. Again, Romans 9, God's mercy, but also his justice. 
is justice displayed in Christ and in those who refuse to repent. So, again, a very important balance here. Um, Stephen Sharnock again, God's slowness to anger and his ability to restrain it reveals his power more than his creation of the world. I think that's really uh, quite a statement. In the latter, he has dominion over creatures, but in the former, he has dominion over himself. So, in God's showing patience, he's taking dominion over himself. The same, the same way we would talk about it with our own hearts. Um, I have to show the fruit of the Spirit um, in order to have patience. I need to have self-control, right? If I'm going to have patience, I need self-control. So it's really important that, um, that we see that in ourselves It's very much uh, the same with God in this regard. The power of God is more manifest in his patience to a multitude of sinners than it would be in creating millions of worlds out of nothing. I love that quote. Um, He would have poor sinners look toward him as an atonable deity, a God willing to be reconciled, a God that retaineth not his anger forever. But if poor sinners will take hold of his strength and make peace with him, they may have peace. This long-suffering is an attribute very expressive of the divine nature. He is willing sinners should know, whatever their provocations have been, there is room for pardon and peace if they will yet come in to accept the terms. This patience is a diadem belonging to the imperial crown of heaven. The Lord glories in it as what is peculiar to himself. So, we... um, we probably don't highlight the patience of God enough in our theology. I think it's a really important aspect that we sometimes um, just sort of assume. Um, but if even as Christians, if we consider our own lives and the way that God deals with us, there's tremendous patience that he shows toward us. As, um, as we go and live our lives day by day, as we learn the scriptures, as we seek to apply them, as we screw that all up, or, you know, we get down the road sometimes and we think we had something all figured out and then say, uh, I really goofed that one up. I need to revamp and rethink and rework. And God's patience is abundant in all of these things. And so we see that with ourselves and his patience toward us as his people as we continue to... Um, to move forward in the Christian life. And it should, again, be something that evokes great uh, worship from us. So any thoughts on the long-suffering of God? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if we consider our lives prior to our salvation in Christ, um, we see this very thing playing out, that Peter's saying, God is patient towards you. you know, you could think of moments in your life where, why did God not just destroy me right then and there? Especially if, you know, there was open rebellion and blasphemy toward God um, to where we just openly blaspheme the name of the Lord, um, that he would even put up with that. Um, it's amazing, amazing a show of mercy. Yeah, sure. Generally, if um, for carnal man at least... Um, if I know that someone is uh, at Walmart right now and getting on the PA saying some pretty awful things about me, um, you know, or they go on national television and spew all of these um, horrible, awful things about me, I'm going to take some, you know, course of action to, um, uh, you know, either I want to fight the guy at a minimum, 
I want to sue him for slander and all of these things. You know, I want to go down that route. Um, you know, God, God is being blasphemed nationally on television and at right this very moment as we speak. Um, and yet he's patient toward these people who will openly and to as many people as possible declare that he is not God and he's worthy of being mocked and all these things. So it is, uh, it is an incredible thought. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's something we need to think more about, certainly, in our own devotion as we consider God's um, kindness toward us, His goodness. And that's... So the next section, this is just two short paragraphs in your notes because really we've covered that God is abundant in goodness. I quoted Mark ten eighteen here. Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. Um, so we can reflect goodness, we can sh- do good things, we can do good deeds, we can show goodness toward one another, um, and this is a post-regenerated heart. Um, but all of this is simply us imitating God or um, showing forth what we are as a result of being created in His image and redeemed in Christ. Um, so uh, truly when Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, um, there's, uh, that's absolutely true. He's abundant in goodness. Um, there is no, there is nothing good that is not good. Um, there's nothing good that is good uh, apart from God having it made it that way. Um, all as a reflection of Him. God's infinite goodness is the source of all creaturely imitations. Precisely because God does not depend on the world, His goodness is never threatened. God is good toward all he has made, even his enemies. He can afford to be because he is God with or without them. That's a really uh, helpful statement. Um, So I just right here at the end, as I've already uh, noted, the mercy, grace, love, long-suffering, all of these generally, if you open a systematic theology book, are going to be under the, um, the formal heading of the goodness of God. Um, that's not to say that these are lesser attributes than the goodness of God, but simply it's sort of all-encompassing when we say the goodness of God, and when we break that out to define it, we're dealing with all of these other attributes. So um, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Therefore, good is what God approves in himself which is all that he is, and in creation, which is merely a reflection of his having created us in his image. So everything that God does is good because God does it. Because God is good. And so nothing that God does can be looked at and said that that's not okay, that's evil, that's wicked. Anything other than that is good because God has done it. Because God is the only one who's good, therefore God gets to define what good is. Now, obviously God's not going to work against his word, so if God were to do something against his word, um, you know, that would be another issue, but he, he can't and he won't. Um, so all that God does is good. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we're about out of time, so we won't get into the next two um, Short sections, abundant in truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, 
the rewarder of them that seeks him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's the completion of this um, paragraph. So any thoughts on um, any of this or anything as you've thought through this whole paragraph on the, um, the, what we call the doctrine of God? Um, just real quick before we, before we break, um, the things that we've worked through and talked about, um, how have they informed, I guess, your worship or your thoughts about God and the way you talk of him or how you read your Bible? What are some things we've covered that have been really helpful to you in that regard? So it's, not, it's not as simple as saying, well, God loves me and he saved me and I'm going to sit around and wait till the end. Uh, there's so much more to know of God than he loves me. That's a great thing, and I'm thankful for that, but, man, it's so so small compared to everything else. Mm-hmm. Good. So, really, the simplicity of God that, you know, all all of his attributes are um, the the most absolute, most complete way of speaking of them. So, he is love in its entirety. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's big. It really expands God for us, makes him much bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, I would assume most of us, if not all of us, you know, as soon as we hear of something like uh, shootings in Connecticut, are instantly we start thinking about God. We instantly think about. God's interaction here, what's the right understanding of how this works out? If if we're not spending our time digging into one paragraph of our confession to deal with all of these attributes and the nature and character of God, answering questions about something like that is impossible. And so you get a bunch of bozos on TV saying really dumb things about God um, because they're not true. Um, and it's simply because their theology goes no deeper than well, God just loves us. And so the tendency is to remove God from the situation altogether. Well, he doesn't have anything to do with this. How hopeless is that? God has nothing to do with this? So he's just like he turned his back and it happened while he wasn't looking? Um, or, you know, even uh, working through, you know, does God cause something like this? Does God allow this? How do we, you know, answering those questions is a lot more helpful and hope-filled than to just say, well, that wasn't God's will. He didn't have anything to do with it. Okay, well, then how do we answer it? (laughs) Um, That leaves a lot of open-ended things. So understanding God and his nature, his character, and all of his attributes is so helpful to answer all of these questions of life that we really have to deal with. That's good. There's um the the vast majority of the church is has completely divorced itself from what we call historical theology. And that's a fear of falling into traditionalism or looking like Rome or something along those lines, but um it's really unfounded. You know, what we're saying then is we develop all that we understand about the Bible isolated from what God has done over the last two thousand years. That's ridiculous. <laughs> the creeds and confessions of the church throughout history are very, very helpful to us to understand um, what we believe and why we believe it. Um, 
if you look throughout history, it seems as though God reveals certain things of, of the scriptures in certain ways in certain periods of time um, because of the circumstances and the context of uh, the culture at that time. Uh, there's a certain emphasis. For example, during the Reformation, it was justification by faith. Now, the church had always believed that, but it was never emphasized as heavily as it was during um, during the Reformation. And you see these things in these time periods throughout the history of the church, the Trinity early on, dealing with that in the early creeds, and on and on. So if we pull ourselves away and say, well, no creed but the Bible, okay, well, what do you believe about the Bible? <laughs> That's that's your creed. If you were to sit down and say, no creed but the Bible, and here's what I believe about the Bible, well, all of a sudden you're drafting a creed or a confession of faith. Um, so we can't divorce ourselves from that. And I'd much rather stick to something rooted in history that survived the years than something that's some guy thought up in his basement 10 years ago. Um, so I, I, um, I, too, am thankful for that, and it keeps us grounded and to have something where if I preach something, you guys can turn to the confession and say, hey, you're not lining up with what this says um, because we've all agreed that this is our, you know, because this is an expression of what we believe the Bible to teach. This is where we go for a summarized version of the major doctrines of the Bible, and you're not on par. Um, so it's really helpful in those regards too. Yeah, yeah, it does. Sure. And that's, you know, that's why we would say, you know, certainly no confession or creed is infallible. Um, they're always open for correction. We'll get to one section in the confession that, uh, you know, collectively as elders, we've said we don't necessarily agree with the wording of it here. Um, so, you know, there's there can be a tendency toward, you know, looking at the confession on the equal level of the Bible, and that's really dangerous too. So yeah, we have to be very careful and guard against that. You know, there's even, among Reformed Baptists right now, there's a push to um, to add some things to the confession that weren't necessary at that time, uh, to change some of the language, to alter it. So there's some good things being discussed in that regard. There's others, though, that would say, uh, we can't touch it, we're going to destroy it. Um, and we don't have um, theologians today as they had then. There's some truth to that uh, in the same way. Um, and so it's a historical document that we need not alter. If we want something else, then we need to call it something else entirely. So there's a lot of those discussions. I think there's proper caution being thrown in that regard, though. But, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, yeah, if those guys had the same mentality. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know... Again, we have to think of those things historically, like what was going on then versus what's not. You know, I'm thankful that those men did what they did. I don't want that task. <laughs> Josh, what were you going to say? Yeah, it's it's nice, isn't it? I like sounding old and dusty. All right. Well, we're uh, we're well out of time now. I like I said last week. I like I was done two minutes early tonight, so we had to have more conversation. I can't be can't be done on time. It's silly. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for this time, and thanks for our study, and for all that you're teaching each of us as we gather and look at um, what we have um, as a result of the work 
of faithful men who have gone before us um, that you have taught and that um, uh, who have been able to look uh, at your word and what you have taught your church uh, through the ages and uh, to be able to um, define for us exactly um, what the scriptures teach. And I'm thankful, God, that you've given this to us and given us this time and this place and the desire in all of our hearts to know more of you through uh, through our confession of faith um, as it um, as it reveals to us what the scriptures teach. So, uh, God, help us uh, to remember these things that we've discussed uh, regarding the doctrine of God. Help us to remember to refer back um, to all that we have um, taken in our notes and to think on these things and to talk about them and pray through them. And, uh, Lord, that more and more in our lives as we consider the circumstances of each day, and uh, the uh, circumstances of culture and life, uh, that our instant thought is uh, you and your character and your nature and your attributes and how they are all at play. So, Lord, uh, help us in that, uh, that you'd be glorified all the more through us and as we get to know you more, uh, that our devotion and our love for you increases. We love you and thank you and praise you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.